Where do you want to live? Americans tell us why they moved to Italy to make a new life for themselves in Europe. Every summer I went, and every summer it got harder to come back to the States, so I eventually just decided to move there. It's so relaxed, more downtime, more... Uh, they're not so serious about everything in life. Maeve Higgins' hometown was the last place many Irish emigrants saw of their native land. So she says it's only natural to find herself drawn to fellow immigrants from around the world. I always find that immigrants have a story because they've literally left one life behind and started a new life. The Irish-born stand-up comedian explains why she chose New York City when she moved to America a few years ago. 45% of New Yorkers are born outside of the country. They're not even born in America. So it's kind of a unique city, I think. Stay with us for the stories of immigrants to and from America in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe. My favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe, too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. Irish humorist Maeve Higgins tells us what it was like to start her life over in New York City a couple years ago as an immigrant to the United States. She joins us in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start the hour with a look at the other side of the coin as a couple of Americans explain how they reinvented themselves when they moved to Italy. Have you ever liked what you saw in Italy so much that you dreamed of actually moving there? I have to admit, I've been tempted myself. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by two people who gave in to that temptation, and now they're living their Italian dreams. Anna Piperato left her job in 2014 and moved to Siena. Anne Long fell for a handsome Italian and settled down with him near Sorrento, above the scenic Amalfi Coast. Anna and Anne join us now to tell us their story. Thanks for joining us. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot, Rick. So, Anna, how did you end up in Siena? I studied Italian in college, fell in love with it, decided to move to Italy after college, moved to Turin, then ended up doing uh, graduate work in Manchester, became a professor, and then realized that I needed to get to Siena because I did my thesis on St. Catherine of Siena. Uh And every summer I went and every summer it got harder to come back to the States. So I eventually just decided to move there. And that was a few years ago? Yes. You must like it because you're still there. I do. I love it. (laughs) Turin, by the way, big industrial city in the north, no nonsense. Fantastic city, though. Best food, really. In Turin. Not many people think about that, but you ended up in sort of the fairy tale medieval town of Siena. (laughs) And Anne Long, what's your story? I changed my major twice in university and so decided to take a six-month break to go to Italy to try to learn the language because I'd been there on vacation before. And then after six months, decided to stay and ended up marrying an Italian and been 38 years living in Sorrento. <laughs> 38 years in beautiful limoncello country. Sorrento, uh, ice cream, limoncello, what else? Whoa, Nothing I better. I can't think of a more Dolce Vita place than <laughs> Sorrento. So now you've been there 38 years in a small town, a small community in Italy. Small community above are Sorrento. You, are you always the foreigner? Uh, you don't look Italian. I'm a foreigner. I definitely have strange ways the way I do things. Uh, it's foreign, but I've been absorbed into the community. They think of me as a local because I've withstood 38 years. <laughs> and you respect the norms I do of the respect society. them. And there's a lot of my friends that were foreigners that have left since and they get 
No respect. I get mm, the respect. Right. So are you uh, accepted in the community? Are you taken seriously at community meetings or, yes. I don't know, parent-teacher meetings or whatever you might be into? You sit there at the table and, and you're part of the community. Sure, they'll ask me about my opinion about local ideas and things. And I'm raising family in the community as well, so it touches my life. Yeah. Now, Anna, I, I always think of Americans who settle down in Europe as expats. Yes. <laughs> But you're also just flat-out immigrants, aren't I'm just you? an immigrant, exactly, which my friends in Siena always remind me of. Oh, here so, comes the immigrant. <laughs> what's the difference between an expat and an immigrant? Well, if we're going to be blunt, the color of your skin. Isn't that something? Yeah. I know in Italy, relationships seem to be really important to get things done personally and in your, in your work life. Talk about the importance of relationships in Italy. They're hugely important, and I think that had I not found myself in a contrada in Siena, I don't think I would have stayed because it's so important to be a part of a community, and I am the American in the She-Wolf. So you really identify with the She-Wolf district. Absolutely. That's Lupa? Yes, right? Lupa, exactly. Yeah, I know that because you guys won the uh, Palio two times in one year. Yes, we did. And Siena has this passion for the neighborhood. Yes. I mean, famously with these contrade. Yes, and I think that Siena is very much a walled city in, in both senses of the word because it, it has the walls that are still there from medieval times, but there's this walled mentality as well where it's hard to enter right. uh, and to become a part of the community. So I feel very lucky that I found myself in the Contrada and that they accepted me eventually. But like Anne said, it took a while. Oh, she's still coming back. So she is a local. She's staying yeah. here. Yeah, she, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Long from Sorrento. When you talk with your neighbors and so on in Italy or out, uh, the passeggiatas, the big thing, Sorrento's got a wonderful passeggiata. How probing, how deep are the conversations? What's it like when people are friends? Do they get to know each other or is it kind of superficial? It's always a, a very formal introduction when you first meet mm-hmm. somebody. Uh, they're only asking basic questions about uh, your name, maybe where you came from, mm-hmm. uh, why did you decide to come. But they don't really, it takes quite a while to get into the close relationship where you start to exchange more personal information. But also, you know, I'm in the south of Italy. That's where most of the immigrants from Italy went to America. They can't understand why I left. You went the other direction. I did. I did. Everybody dreamt of immigrating to America, and I came the other way. So what are the cultural challenges? Anna Piperato, what did you find about how people would be different than what you may have grew up with in the States? Well, first, there is the language issue, of course. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, you get better every year speaking Italian, but Mm -hmm. there's understanding the humor, Mm -hmm. uh, realizing that people are just, you know, when they're being sarcastic, you think they're being mean to you, but they're not. They're just... Because it could be taken as, that was insulting. That was pretty Yeah, the Tuscans are very, very dry, and it takes a while to learn their sense of humor. Is there a directness? They are much more direct, yes. Okay. So now you have to deal with a a government that makes our government look like it's got its act together. (laughs) (laughs) And you've you've been there for 38 years. What's the attitude to the government? Because you get get all sorts of chaos in the Italian government. It's also what the Italians hear. They don't hear the whole story. Mm. You're bombarded over here with every single minute being filled with what's going on. And he said this and then he tweeted this and things. So the Italians are only picking up pieces here and there of the information. But they're still quite amazed that the superpower has gone towards someone who is like their Berlusconi. So we they have can, this uh, right now, this uh, heightened awareness of sexual harassment in the United States. Right. Um, what's the perspective from Italy on that? Because when I look at Italian TV, it's just bimbo city. There's, oh, there's it no is. Response it's, uh, absolutely it's, none whatsoever. And yeah. nobody is saying a word. They're following what's going on, mm-hmm. but nobody's saying a word. They're not bringing it up. They don't see it as a problem. 
they're satisfied with the status quo as far as... Now, you're both women. Do you, do you think there's a underlying abuse here, or is that just part of the culture, Anna? Well, I find that this is the interesting thing about being an outsider, is that I'm allowed to have different perspectives. I'm allowed to voice my opinion in a different right. way than Italians might be able to. But, I mean, I think it's just... I don't want to be rude about my adopted country, but it's sick when you see, like, Wheel of Fortune, and then there's people dancing in the background, these, these yeah. women just scantily so clad. So it's just and, boy toys in the background yeah, as decoration. That serve no purpose. With no apology. No, no apology. Yeah. Now, the bureaucracy, you guys live with the bureaucracy. I've dealt with the bureaucracy when I'm making my TV show. I can't believe mm. the inane, i got to get a stamp for this permission. And the stamp shop, it, it, I mean, the little kiosk that sells these tax stamps is six blocks away, or it's closed <laughs> for lunch, or it's not open until Monday. Yes. And it cost me a dollar and a half for the stamp, but I still can't get this thing done until I get that stamp. And it's just enough to make me be rude right there in that office in Rome. What's it like living with the bureaucracy? Oh, my gosh. I mean, just for example, when you when you move house, you need to put your name on the electric bill. But in Italy, you need to pay for that right to change the bill. So it was 100 euro to change to get my name on the bill. When you go to the post office, you got to, you know, figure out which button to push to pay your bills to get a stamp. Oh, my gosh. And then <laughs> and uh, on top of that, you've got complicated taxes and the national pastime of tax evasion in Italy. Right. It, it becomes a real game. You know, they, they oh. don't look at it seriously. It's just, a, how do I figure out how to not pay the taxes? My guess is that taxes are twice as high as they need to be because they only hope to get half of the taxes they're billing. <laughs> well, they know. For. They know the, the Italians are evading them, so they're going to get them. In the end, the total is going to be there. They just have to be very imaginative on how to... Right. But some people have an easier time to wiggle around the taxes than others That's by the exactly nature of right. their income. See, the, the people like school teachers, they're very upset because they they can't wiggle. And it's anybody yes. who can get into the black economy, mm-hmm. they've got it. I right. know a few years ago they had a law where everybody was required to both give a receipt and then keep that receipt until you're 100 meters away from that gelato stand or whatever. Right. You bought yes. a gelato, they give you a receipt for two euros, and a policeman can stop you 10 steps away if you don't have that receipt That's in order right. to make sure that people are That's not the taxes. way it is now, but a bread shop down the road, from me, they closed him down for three days because <gasps> he didn't do one receipt. Oh, one, receipt. one receipt. One receipt. So the, the police were there, saw him, that he didn't ring up one loaf of bread. He was closed for three days. Good <sighs> luck if you are in the Italian government trying to minimize bureaucracy, overcome corruption, get rid of bribes, and, and get tax uh, policy taken seriously. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anna Piperato from Siena and Anne Long from Sorrento. Both of uh, our guests are Americans who have embraced Italy, moved there. They are expats. And what's it like being an American just from a legal point of view now? Do you have two passports? Are you still American and Italian? How does that work? And uh, you've been there for 38 years. I'm a dual citizen, and uh, so is my son. So I pay taxes in Italy, you know, earning taxes, but I pay towards Medicare and a pension in America because 30 years ago with my husband, we decided he was going for the Italian Social Security. I was going for the American and see if anything was valid when I retired. Good idea. Play mm. both sides. And uh, do you have that option to pay taxes in one country yes. or the other? But you, one way or another, you need to pay your taxes. Right. And a Piperato, how about you? Are, are you a dual citizen and how do you deal with the any of the legalities of maintaining that? Uh, well, I actually have an American passport and a British passport, so I am in Italy as an EU citizen. Oh, so Brexit. Now that's, a, that's <laughs> sort of a, you're you're playing the the EU uh, advantage here. Yes, this only way I can live there legally because I'm not married uh, mm-hmm. to an Italian. So my mother's British, uh, born and brought up. So I mm-hmm. was able to get my British passport in 2014. As soon as I got it, I left my job <laughs> uh-huh. to live in Italy. 
Brexit happened. But it seems that I can stay because if you were a resident before Article 50 was triggered, then you can stay as so a resident. So you're grandfathered in. Exactly. So really, Brexit, it, it sounds like it might have a devastating impact on Brits abroad. But if yes. you're there, settled, it's, there's a reasonableness in this and you're grandfathered yes, in. Yes, exactly. Trying to minimize the disruption. Britain leaving the EU would Exactly, cause. yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been learning about being an expat in Italy with Anna Piperato and Anne Long. All of us know that Italy is sort of charming because of its, what people like to say, bella chaos, the beautiful yes. chaos. <laughs> and um, if you just couldn't handle the corruption and, and the traffic jams and the temper tantrums, you'd probably enjoy Denmark a little more. <laughs> but you guys clearly enjoy Italy. What are the pluses that make all of these uh, little minuses relatively insignificant? Let's just close with that. Uh, what every, charms you about Italian life? Yeah, every time I have to come back to America to f- remember mm-hmm. what charms me in Italy, because when I come back, things move too fast here. It's so relaxed, uh, more downtime, more. Uh, they're not so serious about everything in life. Mm. We'll work at. We got our six hours or eight hours to worry about it, but forget about it after that. In America, they're just constantly got to get a bigger car, bigger house, more money, move for the job. That's not. Wow, that's a huge philosophical difference that we could do. Big, I big. Mean, t- that's more than just a radio interview. That's pretty fundamental. <laughs> and a piperato. Well, despite all the headaches we talked about, you're never far from a beautiful espresso or a lovely glass of wine, a wonderful plate of pasta. And you're just surrounded by beauty. When I'm in a bad mood, I just have a walk and I look at those medieval walls. I look at that Madonna on the corner and I'm just filled with joy. And it sounds cheesy, but it's true. Beauty feeds my soul. And so living in Italy, living in Siena, seeing the Duomo, you know, at midnight, just walking by, it just makes me feel alive. So La Dolce Vita is more than a a romantic movie. It is Mm. really the essence of Italy, embracing life, living it with your neighbors. and Mm. uh, You live longer. You live longer. It's true, the Italians have a much longer lifespan than we do, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope it rubs off on both of you expats. Anna Piperato and Anne Long, mille grazie. Grazie, Tanko. Grazie, grazie. Maeve Higgins confides what it's like to be an Irish expat in America. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Comedian Maeve Higgins left her home in County Cork and a career on Irish TV at the age of 31. She arrived wide-eyed in New York City, like many of her countrymen, in what she saw as a land of opportunity. As she settled in, she began writing and podcasting with other immigrants in New York as they all sought to better understand the United States. Her book, Maeve in America, is a collection of essays chronicling her adventures and misadventures in her new home. Maeve Higgins, welcome to Mm. Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, you moved from Ireland at the age of 31. How long have you been in the States now? I've been here for five years, so I'm 29. I see. Yeah, Yeah, you're in the States. That's the way it works. That's how it works, exactly. (laughs) I love Ireland. Why would you leave Ireland? (laughs) I do, too. It's so funny, isn't it? Like, I definitely love it at home, and I go back and I think... What am I doing? Like not living here with the butter is so good, and like there's just all of these chubby, round-faced babies oh, who the look butter. like <laughs> the <laughs> the dairy. Like I know the people are great, blah blah blah, the literature, etc. But for me, it's the cream and the butter and the milk. That's my royal family right there. The butter you get in Ireland is so yellow and so salty. And when I moved here. And I got those little sticks, those pale sort of anemic sticks. It was like a changeling, you know. It was like a wicked fairy had replaced actual butter with this sort of 
anemic version of itself. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of frustrating things about living in America, and, 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 but that's and that's one of them. When you have that butter, you've got to put it on something nice. And, and the, the bread, mm-hmm. the, the, the heavy, dark uh, soda bread, right? Soda bread, oh, yeah. I, I my lo- that's grandmother my used to things. make... You like that? I actually, I don't really like it. I, You know, what I love is like Wonder Bread. Like I love like thin, sugary, <laughs> bad bread because that's what I didn't have when I was a kid. My grandmother used to make, not to get all, you know, like I'm from the 1920s, but my grandmother used to make soda bread and she would always say, what I love about it is my nails are really clean after I've made it. And it's just like, but you know where that dirt has gone into the <laughs> Well, it's I grew so up gross. with Wonder Bread. It, it, we bragged that it ripped in a straight line. And when I go to Ireland, <laughs> I, I go to the opposite extreme. Now you came yeah, from, you're lucky. You came from County Cork and uh, Cove, right? And when I was in Cove, it's, it's famous as a departure point. Wasn't that the last stop of the Titanic? Yeah, it is the last place Titanic stopped before it. I don't want to ruin the end of that movie if, if your listeners <laughs> haven't seen that. But yeah, Cove is quite a, it's a maritime town. It's in Cork Harbour and it's a huge point of departure. Like a lot of people come and visit there because it's where their forefathers and mothers left from. It's a pretty little seaside town with quite a tragic maritime history. You know, it's where... Over one million people left from there in the 19th century. There's a great museum, by the way, about that, that really is worth the, the trip on your way to the the Ring of Kerry. It's lovely. It's called Heritage Centre and mm-hmm. they, you know, they keep the list of names of all these people who departed and there's a recreation of a famine ship. Um, and like I used to go there on school tours as a child, <laughs> which wasn't exactly the most like joy filled, like fun time. I just wanted to go and have chicken nuggets somewhere. But they were like, here are some starving people in a boat. Think about that. <laughs> But it is fascinating. Now that I'm older, I've really come to appreciate it because I grew up knowing about, you know, all the people who who left Ireland. And I didn't really think too much about like what happened to them when they arrived. It wasn't until I moved here that I realized that Annie Moore, who was the very first immigrant through Ellis Island, she left from my hometown. You know, she left from Cove 125 years ago. Yeah. When Ellis Island first opened and it's kind of fascinating to live here now and to see all the contrasts between immigrants then and immigrants now. Some of those ships were so miserable, they called them coffin ships because when they got into port, there was a lot of corpses on them. Now you had a much easier time getting across (laughs) the Atlantic, I would hope. Uh, Let's talk about uh, a modern immigrant story. Uh, When you arrived in New York, do you remember the first time you saw the Statue of Liberty? What did you think? Oh yeah, you know, I still to this day, like I live in Brooklyn and still when I'm going over the Manhattan Bridge and I can see, you know, the harbour here and the Statue of Liberty and the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's a very familiar sight, even if you've never seen it with your own eyes. But it still is quite a moving sight, I think. I don't know, I just felt so excited. And I also felt very at home here, which really makes no sense. I mean, I'm from rural Ireland and we really have no business being a New Yorker. <laughs> but, you know, 45% of New Yorkers are born outside of the country. They're not even mm. born in America. So um, it's kind of a unique city, I think. That's a good um, reminder for people who forget that we're we're a country of immigrants. It, it's so obvious. And I think I'm a, I'm a good example of a second generation American. My grandparents came over from Norway. And when I went to Ellis Island, and they put a little museum there where you can actually mm. look at the, the list of passengers on the ships that came in, the registration list, and I could see, yeah. 
your first relative that came over. Wow. And it says how much money they had in their pocket. We didn't let them off the ship unless they proved they wouldn't be destitute. So they had to have $10 cash or something so they could not be uh, just in the streets right away. And I just thought, what a remarkable, courageous thing to do to come to a new land with 10 bucks in your pocket. When you came, did you have friends and family waiting for you or had you set it up or was it pretty much just a, a plunge into into the unknown? It was always um, an ambition of mine, and but it was kind of a romantic one with not much practical thought behind it. I thought, I want to live in New York and be a writer. And then I guess I had moved to London, which is a path very familiar to lots of Irish people. We kind of go to England and then I didn't enjoy London, actually, living there. I love to visit, but I didn't enjoy living there. I found it really hard to kind of connect with people and make friends. And now I only gave it a year, which is probably not long enough. But then I was asked to do a show, I think, in New York. And then my friend, a spare room came up. And along with the show, there was a year long visa. So I was incredibly lucky <laughs> because it's actually oh, so very you difficult got the visa. to move here. You got the visa because you had a, yeah. a gig waiting for you because you do a, you tell yeah. a funny story about a, a gym instructor that had a funny way of describing how hard it is to get a U.S. visa. Yeah. He called it like a, like a burpee or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know burpees. I can't do them. I can't that's do like burpees. A, it's like it's a, a jump. Off, it's a jump. It's a squat and it's a push up or something. And that's the way it feels like trying to get into America. It feels so unattainable <laughs> to me. But then I just got this lucky break where you're obviously not allowed to do shows here because I do stand up unless you have a visa. And there was an Irish festival actually in Kansas City that asked me to come over and do a couple of shows. And the visa they got me lasted for a year. So I was able to kind of come over and, uh, you know, make connections and figure out would I be able to actually stay. And then I transferred on to a different visa. So, so you learned I was, how to do I was a lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you should see my abs. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are immigration no, still, abs. <laughs> I still definitely can't do a burpee. I, that's definitely more difficult. But it's, I mean, it's so interesting to hear about your ancestors who just, you know, they just had to have $10. They probably had some kind of health check or something. I'm sure they, yeah. they weren't made to do oh, push-ups. Yeah. No, but but if would, you were, say, if you were like a single woman and you looked pregnant, you wouldn't mm. have been allowed in. There was like some, but you know, they didn't have a visa. They may not have even had passports. Like that's mm -hmm. the thing with um, Annie Moore, who was the girl who left from my hometown, the first mm -hmm. immigrant through Ellis Island. She was 17. She was an undocumented, you know, unaccompanied minor. Mm -hmm. And she came over with her two little brothers and... I guess it was lucky at the time that they were white because there was the Chinese Exclusion Act in place then. And so she had some privileges, but it was, I can mm. imagine it was still really tough compared to me. When I get here, I'm just like, I've heard all about this Shake Shack place. Where can I find it? <laughs> <laughs> Our, my grandparents did not have a, a, a Shake Shack in mind when they got here. They had probably had no. a distant relative in in, uh -huh. in North Dakota promising them this is a great place to suffer through a cold. Yeah, winter. they were like, we can we can keep some borscht for you. That's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the, such small things, kind of. I mean, I know this is a travel show, right? So it's so funny to me the tiny things that baffle me in a new place. And one of those was literally in JFK Airport when I arrived and I went to use the restroom and they have these gaps in the restroom doors between the door mm. frame and the actual door. 
And I see that's the case in so many public bathrooms around America. And it's just so <laughs> confronting. So they've got gaps in the doors. You can see into stalls. Is that, that's what I like about your book <laughs> is you have these observations that we wouldn't have because they're all around us anyways. But you coming in from Ireland, you see it with these fresh Irish eyes. Irish comedian Maeve Higgins is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. It's an interview we recorded when she had just released her book about the immigrant experience in New York. It's called Maeve in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. You'll also hear Maeve as a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and her commentaries appear in the New York Times. She also co-hosts a stand-up comedy gig that streams once a month from Brooklyn. We have links to her work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So, Maeve, when you are settling down in New York, and it's been several years now, do immigrants in general hang out with other immigrants, or do they make a point to break out of that and uh, just get connected with the non-immigrant world? It's funny. I definitely was careful not to kind of slip into just hanging out with other Irish immigrants, but I was certainly drawn to other immigrants from all over the world. And I think that's because we all shared you know, we were new here. And also, like, I always find that immigrants have a story because they've literally left one life behind and started a new life. And so Mm -hmm. me, like as someone who who loves stories and loves, you know, storytelling, I kind of was drawn to people with those stories. And they had been on a journey and I don't know what it was really, but I just found myself being so curious about this huge group of people. Mm -hmm. And also that, you know, I guess the past few years, there's been a big um, anti-immigrant sort of a vibe (laughs) happening. And so that kind of made me more curious. I was like, well, what's the truth here? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's why I started to do my podcast, which was I'm often amazed when I listen to the radio in the States or watch TV or there's not that many immigrant voices represented, even though, you know, this country is so, you know, made up of immigrants unless you're Native American or your, your family was brought here as enslaved people, then you're there's immigration there somewhere. It just was like this big, knotty kind of problem that was also fascinating and so full of humanity that I just couldn't stop thinking about it and learning more about it. So your podcast has a mission then. It's to give immigrants a voice to share with other immigrants or or the society at large. I mean, I definitely felt, oh, like what a cool platform this is that I can kind of shift out of the way and immigrants can tell their stories in their own voices. Yeah. And it wasn't even like particularly dramatic stories. Like I interviewed one um, Syrian man. He's a Syrian asylum seeker. Mohammed Zaza is his name. And since we spoke, Syrians have been banned from America, which is hugely traumatic. Mm-hmm. But I didn't particularly like want him to talk to me about like, you know, about the Syrian civil war or about the tragedy that has befallen his family and his people. He is a father. He he had a year and a half year old little boy at the time. So he's trying to quit smoking before his son and his wife was nagging him all the time. Like, you have to stop smoking. But like, it was his kind of stress relief. And he knew if he stopped smoking that he'd start eating more chocolate. He loves chocolate and he didn't want to like put weight on. That was what was preoccupying his mind. And I just thought that was so funny. And he kind of reminded me of one of my uncles at home, who's like kind of a just like a funny joker. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, we can just get to know Zaza and 
he goes by Zaza because there's so many Muhammads in his school. <laughs> you know, but that's, you've hit it right there. That's the value of, of talking and, and humanizing each other. I mean, a lot of times we forget immigrants are, they've got the same stories as us. They buy groceries. They, they, they mm-hmm. have a partner who snores. They, they've got to take care of grandma. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know how to use their iPhone. I mean, a lot of times we fear the unknown. And with a podcast like yours or, or getting to know people that might be scary otherwise, you realize this fear is ridiculous. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's kind of like, I think, what happens when you travel, too. If if you're lucky mm-hmm. enough to get out to travel, like I went to Iraq two years ago and it was to do a comedy workshop in Erbil, which, you know, is in Kurdistan up in the north. And something that I was completely taken aback by was like, everyone offers you tea all the time. And I was just like, oh, this is exactly like Ireland. Everyone in Ireland is obsessed with tea. If you, you say no, they just think you're being polite. So they just keep saying mm-hmm. like, have another, have a cup. Just have, no, it's no bother at all. I put the kettle on now. And you're like, okay, in the end, you just take the tea. And it was <laughs> the exact same in Kurdistan. But like the tea was a bit different. It was really sweet. And it was in these like little, small little glasses, yeah. almost like a shot of very sweet tea. But it was the same kind of like Enforcing level your of love like on somebody persistent. by making them drink tea, tea. Yeah, totally. Just like we will be good hosts. You will drink this tea, and it was just reminded me of my of my mom. So I think that's one way of kind of connecting and understanding. Like, oh, oh yeah, and you come from a country is... that has this wonderful gift of gab, and uh, I, I just love that <laughs> called the crack in the pubs in Ireland, of course. And you can bring that <laughs> yeah. gift of gab to your uh, adopted new homeland. Yeah, definitely. I do. I love talking and I love, um, you know, figuring out like ways that we're different and ways that we're the same. And, you know, I became a stand up comedian was the first thing I did, which is kind of very, I guess, self-centered or you're just talking about yourself (laughs) all the time. And then after about eight years of doing that, I was like, oh, my God, Maeve, listen to other people for two seconds. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Maeve Higgins. Her book is... Mave in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Zoe is calling in from Ithaca in New York. Hey, Zoe, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Maeve. Thank you for taking my Hi, call. Hi, Zoe. I spent my last two summers in County Roscommon in the west of Ireland, um, oh. and I really did leave a piece of my heart in the countryside there. Um, and I wanted to share my experience because um, I'm a college student, and funny enough, I do feel like my travels in the Emerald Isle, I sort of found more of myself along the way. Mm -hmm. And kind of an assumption about Americans that I came across in Ireland is that most Irish people think of us Americans as energizer bunnies and always wanting to get on to the next thing. And what I discovered is that there's a certain kind of island time, though it's definitely not the tropical kind, but a pace that you kind of have to get used to where nothing's ever rushed and everything unfolds slowly. And I kind of recognized myself while traveling a bit of that urge to want to go, go, go. But now I'm really just trying to incorporate more of that relaxed and with the flow attitude into my daily life. It's a nice uh, reminder to myself when I feel stressed and overwhelmed. You know, Maeve writes about that in her book, Maeve in America. Maeve, you've got this wonderful example of how Americans have a tough time with real small talk. You know, especially, well, I don't know, especially it's the only place I've lived, but in New York City, Time is just so portioned out and nobody has like a minute to just let nothing happen. And I find meeting people, you know, at parties or at a dinner, immediately they kind of just want to get to the, okay, who are you? Like, could you be helpful to me? Or just like, will you waste my time? 
Um, it's that networking. Kind of, We've got to be networking. I don't like yeah, that word. It's, like, it's networking. And it's also just like, don't waste any time. Like, don't bother talking about the weather. Talk about your feelings. Like, get in there. Just like race to the finish. And <laughs> I went to a kid's birthday party in Brooklyn and I just struck up conversation with this guy. He was just like standing there with a pale ale in his hand and you know, he said, you know, something people don't know is that sometimes you're not going to like your kids. You're just not going to like them. And I was kind of <laughs> like, oh, I just asked, were you online for the bouncy castle? I didn't know. <laughs> but people are just so like to the point. I do think it's all related to like, let's get this done. And I guess that's from living in a very capitalist society where like, your worth is um, based on your productivity. So mm. it makes sense that you would be more sort of um, harried here. And like, to be honest, that's one of the reasons that I moved here was the kind of ambition and the faster mm-hmm. pace and the kind of like, let's really try and like be the best <laughs> mm-hmm. that we can be. Like that feeling, it's very seductive. And I think it's definitely helped in my work but I could do with remembering to slow down and to yeah. value people, not just for what they can give me, you know. Get the best of both um, tempos. Zoe, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks, Zoe. I'm so glad that you enjoyed first coming. I love Ireland. It's always going to be in my heart. All right. It's easy going back again, but it's hard to say goodbye. There's more with Maeve Higgins in just a minute on the opportunities and challenges that come with being an immigrant in America. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Listeners share memories of winter season travel in haiku poems they've written especially for us. That's a little later in the hour. Right now, comedian Maeve Higgins is telling us why she left her home turf in Ireland's County Cork to start over among the aggressive go-getters of New York City. Maeve, when you came to America, you know, you're talking about this, everybody thinks of it, I would imagine, as an immigrant as the land of opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. So is it for you? I mean, you wrote about your apartment and you're sharing it with lots of rats and dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the land of opportunity to have a shower in your kitchen. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the um, reality for a lot of newcomers to this society, I would imagine. Oh, definitely. There was an interesting piece in the, I think it was in the Atlantic a couple of years ago about, you know, is, you know, social mobility possible? And for so many Americans, it's just really not anymore. But I think for immigrants, if you've come from somewhere where there's not those opportunities at all, like you can't even see Mm -hmm. them, then it actually is possible to, you know, move up a little bit. Um, I think so. so. We can complain about it, but uh, the whole world has struggles this way. And and this is a land of opportunity. But you got to play your yeah. cards right and you got to have some luck. You should be very lucky. And like, I think from my point of view, I was certainly very lucky back home in Ireland and I had a good career. Mm-hmm. And But there was a certain kind of ceiling that I hit. And mm-hmm. um, just here in the States with, the, you know, there's this explosion of podcasting and mm-hmm. I, I now write for the New York Times and I'm contracted with them. And that just couldn't have happened if I had have stayed at home, you know. So it's certainly rough at the beginning because you're kind of starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. 
And I did have to work like a lot harder than if I had stayed at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, Maeve, Maeve, you're Irish, and a uh, hundred mm-hmm. years ago, I think the Irish were called the uh, the Negroes of America or something like that. Today, you're white, and a lot of immigrants are brown and black. Do you have an advantage mm-hmm. because you're a white immigrant? Oh, certainly. I think that um, it was easier for me to get a visa. I think that um, the immigration system is very racialized. And I think, you know, it has always been. I often hear of um, the current vice president, Pence. He um, gave this speech to Latino leaders where he kind of said, look, my granddad came from Mayo. So Mayo is quite close to Roscommon where Zoe visits. And it's a, you know, it's like a tough county agriculturally. It's in the west of Ireland. It's quite stony. Anyway, his grandfather came from there in 1922. And Mike Pence often uses him as an example of how like he came over and he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. But the thing is, in, in 1922, there was a, you know, the civil war was happening in Ireland. So he, he fled a war. So he was lucky that he was allowed into the States. And also he was white. So he got in because he wasn't Asian. Who A lot of Asian people were banned at the time. And then he got a job as a streetcar driver in um, Chicago. He had good which, stock. You know, I was raised, my great-grandmother would say, she'd look at me and she'd say, good stock. Good and I, stock. <laughs> and, and I thought she was just saying, oh, he's got Norwegian complexion and, you know, blonde hair or whatever. But good yeah. stock was a legal thing back then. And good stock meant you yes. came from a white country. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't exactly. know that. They, they finally changed that law. But I understand 100 years ago, our immigration laws actually looked at your stock. And uh, that's something that uh, kind of haunts our situation to this day. I think it does too. I think it hasn't been dealt with. And so like just my own situation, it's kind of hard to say exactly what my advantages are, but it's certainly easy to look at. Well, you know, I have this three year visa that I just renewed for another three years and it was paperwork and it wasn't easy. But it certainly when I look at my skills and, you know, it's like, well, there's an astrophysicist that I know of sitting in a refugee Mm. camp in Jordan and he can't move and you know it gets tricky too doesn't it when you start to kind of say well like who's valuable I don't know if you saw the French team won the World Cup and you know there was lots of like viral tweets and things saying like look because 16 of the team were either immigrants or or their parents were immigrants Mm -hmm. and um, to France and so there was a lot of like, yes, we're, you know, immigration is the best because like we won the World Cup. But that's kind of like, well, I can't be an athlete. <laughs> like, I can't be, <laughs> you know, you can't expect, um, you know, you can't expect to have. So that's sort of the good immigrant thing is sort of it kind of creeps me out a bit, too, because, you know, everybody deserves right. to have an equal chance. It yeah. is an odd thing to say a good immigrant or, or not. You must be a little bit exasperating for you in your role as a communicator, a, a comedian, a writer, a mm-hmm. person with a podcast, to think that there's a lot of Americans who are first and second generation Americans that have almost no empathy for immigrants today. They just don't relate. It's like, we got here, we're on board, and now let's bring up the the drawbridge. I know. I can't... Um, you know, I was trying to do that with my podcast. I kind of thought, oh, well, like, if somebody hears this story with this person's actual voice, just like explaining their scenario, then how could you not relate it back to your mm-hmm. your father or your grandfather? You know, like in Mike Pence's case, 
he's so proud of him for what he did and he's so mm. glad that he was an immigrant and yet like Mike Pence is the one who wanted to ban Syrians like way back in 2014. You know, he's it's very I honestly I I can't really make sense of it except that I guess they feel that there's not enough to go around and also Basically that it's often, you know, white people that are afraid of more black and brown people arriving. So I think it's based on it's racist and it's um, it's not logical, actually, to me. Unless you're afraid of, I, unless you're afraid of uh, a multicolored country. Yeah, but that isn't. That's, yeah, that's, but that's, that's, that's flat not out logical. racism. It's not logical at all. It's just yeah. afraid of ethnic diversity. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Maeve Higgins. Her book is Maeve in America. Maeve, I'm so fascinated by the reality of immigrants today and, and what's their best course to take to succeed. And I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I feel like an immigrant should aspire to assimilate. That doesn't mean give up your culture. That, that means embrace America. And I think this might be politically incorrect, but to speak English so that you function more efficiently in our society. That's what my family did. I, I'm two generations mm-hmm. down, and I, I know no Norwegian words. I'm, I'm thankful to be Norwegian, but my family made a point to embrace. My parents made a point mm-hmm. that you'll do it this way and not that way. And it's just kind of pragmatic. To me, a melting pot is assimilation. There are a lot of cases around the world, in the United States and beyond, where immigrant communities do nothing to assimilate. They just squat in an affluent country and they still are Algerian or they still are Nigerian or they still are Cambodian or whatever. What do you think about that importance of assimilating versus, no, let them have a, a small Vietnam right here in the middle of America? Um, I don't really know about the, you know, putting it that way, that there's sort of people squatting in affluent countries I mean, if anything, like where are the squatters? <laughs> you know, if you actually go back where you draw the line is arbitrary, like this hmm, is should be Native American. That's right. So we, we squat <laughs> this first. This whole country. <laughs> yeah, we right. squat first. And I think, you know, sometimes I think, well, say you mentioned Algerians and I think there is a lot of tension, you know, between, you know, say like French people who were born in France and then Algerian people who moved there. But again, France colonized them and caused wreaked absolute havoc. So in a lot of cases, I think it's important to remember, like, they're here because we were there. That's a very important case right now, because a lot of the immigrants mm -hmm. that are pressuring uh, European borders are fleeing countries that were created by European colonial interests a century Mm -hmm. ago that were impossible countries. And today we we throw out the strongmen that kept those countries together because we want them to be democratic and the countries fall apart. What happens? Millions of immigrants knocking at the door of Europe. It goes back to European colonial greed. Yeah, it does. And so I think that can't be forgotten. But then like say, so like the present day, like this moment, if I was, you know, fleeing violence in Guatemala and I managed to get to the States with my family, I don't know that my first priority would be like, now you have to learn English. Mm -hmm. First of all, English is not the official language of the US, you Mm -hmm. know. So the argument could also be made, well, you know, English speakers need to learn Spanish because in by 2040, we're going to be a minority majority country. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a fair argument for that. And, you know, I think it might be easier to kind of 
get by. I know that for a lot of first generation, so like the children of immigrants, they need to do a lot of code switching, right? Like, So they need to help their parents at home to understand not just the English language, but the kind of whole culture because they're out, they're going to school, they're going to work. And then like their parents mightn't have yeah. time because they're just like working all the time or they're looking after other children to do that. So I think that more understanding is kind of called for. And I think that eventually that does always happen. Like eventually the culture does blend in um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, what what we would say like is American culture. And I think that... um, It's a work in progress. I think it's a work in progress. and, And I don't think that's the biggest problem. Like when I think of immigration... I don't really think, oh, you know, this group needs to mix better or like they need to like not be blasting their music or their, (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I hear kind of like native born Americans, their complaints about immigration, I can think like, really? Um, (laughs) Because it's, you know, there's so many positives to immigration. Like we commit less crime than Americans do. You know, (laughs) we are more likely to be entrepreneurs and we're more likely to um, win a Nobel Prize. Like if you want to go there. <laughs> if you want to debate, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that might, these must be very uh, good issues for your podcast, Maven in America. Uh, there's so I many know, things you I... can talk about and so many challenges to give voice to different uh, immigrant communities and hopefully people from outside the immigrant world will, will uh, pay attention and learn from that. Yeah, I hope so too. And it was so good to chat with you about it. Yeah. Now, I want to just close by talking about you're a comedian and a lot of times you you need to be comedian about uh, difficult issues. Is Mm -hmm. there something funny about being funny about things that are are not funny? (laughs) What's your your challenge as a comedian? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think it's, it's essential. Like, it's so important to keep some levity in everything. I, I think sometimes it gets to the point where, like, making a joke or sharing a laugh with somebody, it's such a kind of connection that you can make. Mm-hmm. And and like not just like as a comedian or like as a communicator, but I think even if you're having a rough day at work and you're kind of like angry with one person, like a colleague who's not pulling their weight, but then you kind of manage to like giggle together about something stupid. Yeah. It's much harder to be mad at them. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like you... joy is a form of resistance. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of a, a yeah. it's, you're, you're, you're being powerful when you can be joyful and, and free. I think so, because it's a part of the, it's just a part of being a person. Like nobody can be a victim all the time or be sad all the time, you know, because that's not doing justice to the other parts of you. So I think it's really, um, it's crucial to remember it. And I think, you know, often with immigrant stories, certainly with, you know, refugees, we just hear like, oh, the the poor things, it's awful. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. um, but of course, there's moments of joy and lightness and silliness and all of that in their lives, just as much as there are in people who aren't refugees or, you know, who aren't stuck in a camp somewhere. Maeve Higgins is an opinion columnist for the New York Times. She's a frequent panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and she co-hosts Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk and the climate justice podcast Mothers of Invention. Our Travel with Rick Steves interview with Maeve was recorded when she had just released a book and podcast series about immigrating to America. It's called Maeve in America, spelled M-A-E-V-E. And, and Maeve, I, I would imagine it's it's interesting for people in an immigrant community to come from a land where you couldn't criticize your president 
And here, to have a president you want to criticize and to be able to do it almost as a celebration mm-hmm. of your freedom, is, is there any sort of element of that? Like, yes, we are so American, we can actually criticize our president. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, if you've come from certainly Iraq in the old days or Syria today or, you know, even Zimbabwe, when Mugabe was president, I think it was quite risky to kind of openly, you know, mock him or um, certainly write a piece in criticizing him. And, you know, that's one of the extraordinary things about America. And I think it's the idea of America that's really being exported too. is that like you you are free to you know, do what you want here within reason. <laughs> so, yeah, within reason, it's got to... But, but still, giving political dissent and, and criticizing uh, somebody you disagree with is kind of like waving the American flag. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, I did this, I think I mentioned I did this comedy workshop in Iraq and we actually interviewed this cartoonist and he was um, he was a Syrian man and Ali Farsat, his name is, Ali mm-hmm. Farsat. And he um, was exiled from Syria because um, he was very badly beaten up by some thugs like representing the government and Assad because he was drawing political cartoons, which, you know, we get to do that every day if we want. We get to say whatever we feel and express ourselves. And, you know, I think that's very important, I think, for for a democracy, you know, to keep it going and to not silence people. I think it's just so important. Maeve, talking with you about this, for me, it's so fun to talk to an immigrant who, whose mm-hmm. life's mission is to bring up hard issues and important issues and, and bring it beyond uh, the immigrant community. A lot of Americans are just fearful now. and We care about our country. We love our country. Yeah. But I think we don't know how to love our country the right way sometimes, and uh, we are needlessly fearful. What would you say to a, a patriot in the United States who's nervous about immigration? Well, somebody that I found so moving was um, Kazir Khan. You know, his son um, sadly died in the, serving the U.S. Army. and he This was the was guy making... who was famous uh, during the debates and so on as Trump was running for president. Yeah, he. you know, I mean, definitely he had to kind of come out against Trump and Trump fought with him and all of that happened. But what stays with me from that moment was his um, did you see he had a copy of the constitution with him and he carries it everywhere and it was all sort of battered and like as if he kind of consults it Mm. and I just thought oh that's the most beautiful image I hadn't really seen any you know native born Americans who, who did that and I think you know that was such a beautiful moment and I think I'm sure Kazir Khan you know has his has his criticisms of this country But at the same time, that's what he holds dear, like literally to his heart. And I think as somebody, as an outsider, I sometimes hesitate to criticize what I see happening in America or what I see as kind of flaws in this country. But I choose to live here. I absolutely love it here. And it's given me so much and just things that I couldn't get literally anywhere else in the world. And I'm so happy to be here and be, you know, paying my taxes and part of the conversation. And it's because I care about the place. And I think every immigrant feels the same. So if an American who's nervous about immigration wants to see patriotism, perhaps they could get to know an immigrant. You should taste my apple pie. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> May Higgins. That's the reason to read your book, Maeve in America. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> of course. Ships wise men will remind you once again
Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are a few recent examples we thought you'd enjoy. Pamela Burton from Coral Springs, Florida, spent her junior year in college studying in northern France. She recalls the wintertime there fondly. Winter in Rouen. Memories of warmth and love. Apples and Monet. Allie McLean makes a point to go running every morning in Berlin, regardless of the season. Miles in my Berlin, winter morning cold at best. Bundle up, I am off. And Don Nelson from Hilliard, Ohio, sends us a trio of haiku from his off-season travels to Europe. The hotel clerk smiles. Rooms are cold in November. This is widely known. Navigating Rome, still the eternal city, even with the flu. I am in Paris, while my impatient luggage flies on to Oslo. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly Tim Tatton and Kazmora Hall. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Gretchen Strout read our listener travel haiku. You'll find guest information and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio.